Life Audio. You are listening to The Beckett Cook Show with your host, Beckett Cook. For more information about Beckett and his ministry, visit his website at beckettcook.com. To help support the podcast, visit patreon.com slash the Beckett Cook Show. Please consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a five-star rating. Hey guys, welcome to the show. Today I have a special guest, my very own pastor, Dr. Jeremy Treat, and we're going to talk about his new book on the atonement. It's called The Atonement and Introduction. And before you turn off the turn the dial, this is actually a really fascinating uh, book because it goes into all of the aspects and dimensions of the atonement. I think as especially as evangelicals, we're so limited in what we understand about the atonement, but this really gets into it. And I'm excited to uh, to share this with you. And I'm excited for Jeremy Treat to talk about this. But first, a word from our sponsor. Well, good day to you. It's Joel with Viking Country dropping in to let you know that our brand new film, Unsung Hero, is in theaters now. It's Luke here. We've teamed up with the creators of Jesus Revolution to bring you this adventure of a lifetime. It's a powerful, true story about a family uniting, growing in their faith, and facing the impossible together. In theaters now, unsunghero.movie for more information. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org impact. So please welcome Jeremy Treat. Hey, Beckett. So good to be here. Glad uh, to, just to have the time to hang out with you. Yeah, good to have you on the show and in my living room and your your living room or wherever you are. Um, okay, so The Atonement, an introduction. Yes. Why a book on The Atonement? Yeah, I mean, great question because there's there's lots of other good books on The Atonement. Um I mean, honestly, one one reason with this, I would say, is that when I look out today, especially towards younger Christians, I think a lot of younger believers are having their theology shaped by reactionary debates about hot topics. And so everyone's reading about whether it's critical race theory or the latest view on sexuality or like, and and they're learning about those through these like hot takes back and forth on Twitter. And what breaks my heart is that I feel like in those contexts, people look at the doctrine of atonement and they yawn over it. Like, oh yeah, of course, Christ died for our sins. But what I really want to talk about is this new thing. And I just think that that's so unhealthy because I'm seeing people forming their theology around these um, secondary doctrines or issues without having a real foundation. So I like... I just, I really believe in the core of my being that the cross of Christ is the apex of human history. There's nothing more important that we can understand, embrace, receive than what Christ accomplished for us on the cross. And so a lot of writing this book was trying to get that out there, being able to say, let's understand this core doctrine. And that doesn't dismiss the importance of conversations about race, sexuality, immigration, politics, all that kind of stuff. But it's going to inform those. And I mean, I do that in the book. I talk about how when you understand the doctrine of atonement, what it, how it impacts the way we talk about politics and race, for example. Um, but I hope that I hope that Christians would recognize that this is a central belief um, for Christianity and really understand something that's at the heart uh, and that's going to give life and meaning to everything else. Yeah. And so can you just give us a, a broad definition of the atonement? What is the atonement? Yeah, so I mean, atonement, the word atonement uh, literally means at one mint. 
So traditionally, we're talking about what Christ accomplishes on the cross to make us at one with God. How does a man dying, uh, you know, a brutal death 2,000 years ago mean anything for you and I here in Los Angeles or people in Lebanon or in China? Like, how does what he did then impact us today? And so the doctrine of the atonement is us seeking to understand the saving significance of Christ's death of what happened then, something happened when Jesus died on the cross that literally changed the trajectory of human history. And the doctrine of the atonement is us plumbing the depths of that, saying, okay, he didn't just die, he died for our sins. What does that mean? Mm -hmm. So that that's like a traditional approach to the doctrine of the atonement with the meaning of Christ's death. Um, two adjustments that I try and make to that in the book is say, Yes, the death of Christ, but we need to understand the death of Christ within the broader scope of Christ's work. So his death connected to his life, his ministry, his resurrection, ascension, and his return. And then also understanding we're not only talking about how Jesus' death reconciles us to God, that's core, but also how his death reunites heaven and earth. Uh, you know, like the Apostle Paul talks about, it's not just the reconciliation of sinners to God, the reconciliation of the world. So broadening the scope and seeing how God's plan is to renew heaven and earth and bring them together. And he does that through the cross. Are those the, because I have this in my notes, are those the two pitfalls that plague the atonement today? Is that, is that what you're talking about? Um, that That's related, but the way I frame that in the book is different. The two pitfalls <clears throat> are to be... Um, the the reductionism on one hand and then this kind of like uh one-dimensional reductionism that says the cross is only this aspect that mm -hmm. jesus uh you know forgiveness that's what he accomplished and so you kind of reduce everything to one aspect or the other side is this disconnected plurality that says no he accomplished all this stuff but then it's all kind of disconnected and presented as like a, a buffet approach, if you can kind of choose your favorite metaphor or pick whatever one you want for your context now. Those, those yep. are the those are the twin errors that I try and address early on in the book. Yeah, and you say that um, you say that you take a multi-dimensional approach, and which we'll get into. Uh, the, I think you talk about twenty dimensions of of the atonement, yeah. right? But we'll get into that in a minute. But you say um, in the book, you say many end up with the wrong doctrine of the atonement of atonement because they have the wrong story or framework. Mm -hmm. uh, let's look at a few examples of unhelpful frameworks before we go to the scriptures. So what are a couple unhelpful frameworks of the atonement? Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll mention two that I think are on kind of uh, opposite ends of the spectrum. I mean, one is the, if, if your broad story of scripture is it's about going to heaven when you die if that's what you think the story of scripture is about, then on the meaning of the cross is the cross essentially becomes a ticket to heaven. That Jesus died so that I could get this ticket and um, life is hard, but don't worry because eventually you're going to go to heaven when you die. And it reduces the cross to being just like a, a ticket to heaven to this disembodied experience. Um in the clouds. So that's on the one hand of the, and that's a very common story. That was like the framework that I grew up in was like, you either go to hell or heaven and the, the goal is going to heaven and Jesus died. So you can get there when you die, uh, which I think is a very different uh, story than the story of the kingdom that we read about in scripture uh, that says, well, the goal is not going to heaven. The goal is heaven coming on earth and the renewal of all things. So yeah, my soul matters, but also my body matters. And what Christ accomplished on the cross has to do with all of that. That's one story that you can lead that, that will lead you to a faulty understanding of the cross. Another story I would say is like making the world a better place. I mean, you had this in like the social gospel in the 1930s in America, but you see it today in a lot of ways as well. This idea that the basic storyline of the Bible is how we are called to go out and do all these good things and and we're sent by God to do it but we're going to make the world a better place we're going to feed the poor uh we're going to clothe the naked we're going to bring justice to the world and it becomes this kind of the and a lot of time people use kingdom language for this but 
where we are building the kingdom from the ground up. And so if, if that's the story that you're working with in scripture, that's your framework, then the cross becomes merely an example of, ah, here's someone who had power but laid it down and cared about the outcasts. But Jesus isn't actually accomplishing anything. He's not dealing with the problem of sin, um, according to that narrative. So those are examples of just how if you have the wrong story, it will give you the wrong understanding of the cross. And which is why in the book, I say, I think the best story to understand the cross is the story of the kingdom. Uh, that's that's the story of scripture. That's the way that Jesus told the story. There's other ways to tell the story. But recognizing that the Bible is a story that begins in a garden and ends in a kingdom, and God is renewing all things through his son uh, to bring heaven and earth together under the reign of his son, that's the story of scripture. And when you have that story, it helps us understand what Christ is accomplishing on the cross. We'll be right back after this short break. What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org impact. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Yeah, and you mentioned the, uh, so how, you mentioned sin. How does the doctrine of, of sin shape the doctrine of the atonement? Oh, well, it's massive. I mean, like, the the doctrine of atonement is essentially us talking about a solution, a remedy. But the what what you believe the remedy is is determined by what you think the the ailment is. Mm-hmm. So if you have a if you have a narrow um, or shallow definition of sin, then you're going to have a narrow, shallow definition of the atonement. But if you have a full, robust understanding of sin, that um, because of my sin, not only am I guilty before God, but I'm also covered in shame. I've been isolated from the people of God. Um, I'm I've I've I'm wandered off from the purpose that I have in life. When you have this fully orbed understanding of the doctrine of sin, then it sets you up to have a fully orbed understanding of what of what Christ accomplished. And that's part of our, our sin separates us from God. That's the heart of it. But it doesn't stop there. It brings corruption and creation. It brings um, interpersonal um, tension and division with others. So when you have that understanding of what's wrong with the world, then you see how the, cro- the cross is the solution for all of that. It's not like the world's really jacked up and then God sent his son to deal with like this little sliver of it. Like there's this spiritual problem that's an aspect and Jesus came to deal with the like spiritual aspect of it. No, the spiritual is central to everything. I mean, we're we're embodied souls, we're spiritual beings, but um, it's also connected to everything else. And so that's where I think if you you have the right understanding of the doctrine of sin, it's going to set you up for a full understanding of atonement. And I, I've talked about this on the show before uh, because I, it's, it's such a beautiful thing. uh, The great exchange. Just briefly, what is the great exchange? Because I I think a lot of Christians don't fully Mm -hmm. understand what, what, what goes on when, when, you know, when you are saved, when you come to faith in Christ, talk talk about the great exchange. 
Yeah, I mean, it's this beautiful truth that while we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and therefore have all the implications of sin on us, so we're guilty, we're covered in shame, we're deserving of punishment, uh, we're separated from the people of God, and yet Christ came, and he had no sin of his own, and yet he went to the cross voluntarily, taking on our sin, dying in our place for our sins. And so what's amazing about that is not only then do does he take on our sin, bearing our judgment, going into exile on our behalf, not only does he do that, but this is where it's the exchange part, is that we are given the righteousness of Christ, the honor of Christ. We are united with Christ and have every spiritual blessing in him. So that's why it's the great exchange, because it's it's not just that Jesus died for my sin and then gives me a blank slate. Like, that's how a lot of people think of it is like, okay, Jesus gives me a blank slate or Jesus gives you a second chance. Mm-hmm. Like, Here's why that falls short so much is that if Jesus died for my past sins and then gave me a second chance, <laughs> I'd do it all over again. You mess like, it up. Like, it'd be like the, like the spiritual version of Groundhog Day. I would just like keep messing up, making the mistakes, like... And so Jesus does so much more than that. He deals with my sin, but he removes my heart of stone and gives me a heart of flesh, fills me with the Holy Spirit. I'm given the righteousness of Christ. Uh, And so that is such, it's so much more when you understand both sides of that exchange that he takes our sin and we receive his righteousness. Yes. Um, I was going to ask you something about that, but so Let's talk about substitutionary atonement. Mm-hmm. What is what is it and how how is it affirmed through church history? Yeah. Yeah. So and I mean, what's like, the difference between what's the difference between between substitutionary atonement and penal substitutionary atonement? Or is yeah, there a difference? Yeah, big question. Um, I mean, substitutionary atonement is what we were just talking about with the great exchange. I mean, exchange is another way of talking about substitution. Jesus is our substitute. He dies in our place um, so that we can be set free, washed clean, made whole. So that's when we talk about substitutionary atonement, he atones for our sins by dying in our place. And that's the very thing that reconciles us to God. Um, So that's substitutionary atonement. Um, It's that Isaiah 53, you know, that uh, by his wounds, we are healed. Now, when you get into the question of penal substitutionary atonement, a lot of people have conflated those things and just think, oh, when we talk about substitutionary atonement, we're talking about penal substitutionary atonement. And I'll assume that not everyone knows what that term means for a Mm -hmm. second, because I still remember the first time I heard penal substitution. I thought that's a really strange phrase. Um, So the idea is, is penalty of Jesus bearing our penalty in our place. So that's substitution is him dying in our place, penalty, him bearing our penalty. And what is that penalty? It's the judgment that we deserve. And so penal substitution is is that idea that Jesus dies in our place, bearing the judgment that we deserve so that we receive mercy instead of judgment. That's like a very basic, simple understanding of penal substitution. What I would say is, uh, I think that a lot of people have have brought the penalty aspect and said, that's central to this. What I try and do in the book is say, I fully affirm penal substitution in the way that I just laid it out. Um, But I think that substitution is the heart of atonement. And the penalty aspect is one aspect of that. But there there are others as well. And so... I mean, you you can take like a victory theme, for example, like Christ accomplishes victory in our place. So, you know, you, you take like the classic David and Goliath story, where the meaning of that story isn't so much of you can be a David that slays the Goliaths in your life. But no, in that story, you're not, you're not David, you're one of the Israelites who's on the side doing nothing. And when David wins the victory, it counts towards all of them because mm-hmm. he's the representative. So 
like you can talk about victory in terms of substitution as well. Like he accomplished the victory in our place and yet we're victors. Like to the point that in Romans, it even says Satan's crushed under our feet uh, because we are in Christ and we are the body of Christ. So I think substitution is central and, and substitution is not just another one of the dimensions. It's the heart that pumps life into all the dimensions. Okay. And then I think the penalty aspect is it's a really important aspect of that. But I, I just don't think you can conflate that with substitution, whereas those two things go together and nothing else does. And yeah, you talk about uh, in the book, you talk about a bad illustration of substitution. Um, talk about that, the train conductor who, uh, and his son. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and and this is this gets into why the doctrine of the Trinity is so important for understanding of the cross, because I mean, the train conductor illustration, like I heard it growing up many times, and it's basically there's a train conductor and he looks down and he sees his child playing in the tracks. And then all of a sudden, oh, no, there's a train that's coming and this train is full of passengers and the train conductor has a dilemma. Uh, if he 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 has to switch the tracks for the train to be able to go forward if he doesn't switch the tracks, the train will go off and everyone in the train will die. But if he does switch the tracks, his child's playing in it and it will kill his own son. And so what does he do in this dilemma? He sacrifices his son to save the many. Now, uh, preachers will preach that. And at one level, it, it, it does communicate some truths about the gospel, that there is sacrifice, that there, one dies for the many. But the problem with that, there's a lot of problems with that illustration. One of the biggest ones is that the son has no idea what's going on and is just blindsided by a train, right? right? Like as if Jesus was just this like nice guy going around and helping and teaching here and there. And then all of a sudden he gets like killed by his father and he's like, what happened? Um, and so you get into these understandings of the cross. This is what illustrations like that and understandings of the cross like that open the door for all kinds of accusations um, about the way that Christians have thought about the cross of like, wait, is that divine child abuse? Like God's killing his own son. And that's where you've got to say, no, what's happening on the cross isn't an angry father blindsiding his loving son and killing him against his will. No, the cross is the apex of the triune mission of God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at work together to reconcile sinners and renew creation. And if you don't understand the doctrine of the Trinity in the right way, then then it's going to send you in the wrong direction in understanding what mm -hmm. takes place across. Yeah, and you you talk about um, uh, you talk about without you, you say that without the incarnation, the atonement is impossible. Why talk about a little bit about the incarnation and why that's so crucial? Yeah, I mean, Jesus has to be fully God and fully man to be the mediator between God and mankind. I mean, that's this is First Timothy 2. Mm -hmm. So Jesus is fully God, but in, in the incarnation, and the word incarnation just means in flesh. I mean, carne is like meat. Think carne asada, uh, <laughs> chili con carne. Like it's the incarnation is God in meat. So Jesus takes on flesh because like in Hebrews, it says he had to be made like us so that then he could die in our place. Um, Athanasius, who's one of my favorite um, historical father. figures in the church, Athanasius talks about this, of that death had to be dealt with through death, but Jesus being eternal God couldn't die. So what did he do? He took on a body so that he might lay it down in our place um so that so that we could be forgiven of our sins and reconciled to god um yeah does that answer the question yeah yeah and you you say in the book you say that people often think of the resurrection as a last minute triumph that unexpectedly saved the day after christ was conquered on the cross after after christ was conquered on the cross am i saying that right but yeah, this yeah, mis yeah. this misconstrues christ's work talk talk about that a little bit yeah, the idea is like, oh, like on on like Good Friday, it's like poor Jesus, like, you know, he, he 
he was down, down for the count, like he lost this one. But then, you know, on Sunday, uh, he rose from the grave. And, and so the, the way that a lot of people think of it is the cross was a defeat that was then made right by the resurrection. Mm. Like, like all of a sudden God, like, oh shoot, I got to get this together. Like, let's have him come back from the grave, you know? Um, and, and so I think that's a, a completely wrong way of understanding the cross. The cross was not a defeat that needs to be made right by the resurrection. The cross is a victory that is revealed in the resurrection. And this is what you have throughout the scriptures. I mean, you think of Colossians 2, that through his death on the cross, he triumphed over Satan and demons um, by disarming them of their accusatory power. And so Jesus is victorious on the cross. He conquers death through death. And then when he raises from the dead, it's the vindication of him. So it was a victory, the cross, but it was perceived as a loss. Everyone around thought, oh, I guess he lost. I guess, I guess it's over. I guess he wasn't the king. I guess the kingdom's not coming. But when he rose from the dead, it's a vindication of that. It was showing he is who he said he was. He accomplished what he said he would accomplish. He's the king who's renewing creation. And, and what about the ascension? Because you say the, the ascension is significant for the atonement. Yeah, I mean, the ascension and the, the session of Christ, which just means the Christ being seated at the right hand of the Father. Both of those are really important. I mean, so the ascension, I mean, what Jesus is doing on the cross is he's he's ultimately reuniting heaven and earth. And so what you have is Jesus dying on the cross, raising from the dead, and then he ascends into heaven, sits down at the right hand of the Father. And even in that, it's this like connection between heaven and earth is taking place. What's been torn asunder is being stitched back together. And then with the session, I mean, Psalm 110 is the most quoted scripture mm -hmm. in the whole New Testament. It's the most quoted Old Testament verse in the whole New Testament. And it's the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. And it's this vision of a priest king who has who has offered the sacrifice and is seated at the right hand. And that's what that's what happens when Jesus ascends and sits down at the right hand of the Father, that he has accomplished this victory. It is finished. He is the sac the once and for all sacrifice. And then he he sits down um, and he's ruling over his enemies. He has he has um he's reigning over heaven and earth, and yet he's doing it with love and mercy as he displayed in the cross. Yeah, and you you talk about um the th there's you talk about the three i think these correct me if i'm wrong but i think these are the three kind of main uh views of the atonement and different traditions emphasize different views and um one is christus victor one is uh substitution and one is moral exemplarism so am i correct in saying that first of all are those the yeah, three I mean, kind of main yes that well and, that that's the way that the conversation is normally had. Yes. And why, so why, because for example, I think Eastern Orthodox Christians, they emphasize Christus Victor. So why do Protestant, why do evangelicals, for example, emphasize substitutionary atonement, I think is if, I, if I'm correct, and yeah. Eastern Orthodox, and what do Roman Catholics emphasize? And because I mean, you do you bring all this together and, and, and look at all of the dimensions of it, which is so important. But why? What is is that? Am I correct in saying all that? So let me get on my soapbox for a minute and and go after one of my pet peeves when it comes. Uh -oh, to Oh, did I just say a pet peeve of yours? No, 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 it's fine. What you're what you're saying is you're representing the way that the conversation is normally had. And here's how, if you start reading books on the doctrine of atonement um, or, or enter into conversations, here's how the conversation normally goes. Oh, doctrine of atonement, which theory do you believe in? Do you either believe in Christus Victor, which says that what Christ accomplished on the cross is defeating Satan and demons, or do you believe in penal substitution, that he satisfied the wrath of God for the forgiveness of our sins, or do you believe in the moral exemplar theory that says that what he did on the cross was he gave us an example of sacrificial love? And sadly, that's the way that the conversation has developed, and it results in this, uh, this uh, pendulum swinging reductionism, where it's mm -hmm. like, 
No, Jesus didn't die to defeat demons. He died to satisfy the wrath of God. And it creates this either or, where honestly in scripture, there's a both and, and it reduces the atonement to a fracture, a fraction of the glory of the gospel. And then the, the sad thing, Beckett, is that a lot of people do reductionist history with this then. And so they'll read back in church history and basically say, oh, the early church believed in Christus Victor. But then Anselm came along, this medieval theologian, and made it all about uh, substitution and the wrath of God. And then, you know, you had others who said, you know, who said, no, it's about God's love. And the problem is, if you go back and read church history, hardly of them and it did that. Uh, they that most of them saw that the the accomplishment of Christ on the cross was multidimensional and embraced a lot of that. Now they emphasized different things, but it wasn't until the 1850s. That was the first time that anyone started using theory language with the atonement of, oh, Christus Victor theory, as if it's this like explanation that rules out every other explanation. And so I, that's what I think is at the heart of the problem and the way that the conversation has been had is it's, it's this either or approach when I'm trying to say, no, let's embrace the fullness of what Christ accomplished on the cross. He bore our shame. He adopts us into the family of God. We experience healing. We're brought home from exile. He gives us an example. We're set free from sin. We're given immortality. So we have a full understanding of the cross. And I think to do this, and I'm coming back to answering your question about Eastern Orthodox. To do this, this is where we can actually learn from a lot of different traditions in the church. And not only traditions, but different cultures. So Eastern Orthodox is a great example here of uh, they emphasize something called um, theosis, which right. is this idea of like participating in God, or, or some would call it deification. And a lot of Protestants will hear that and be like, oh, that's weird. That sounds heretical, like participating in God. And then we're like, well, wait a second, because Peter talks about explicitly in scripture, participating in the divine nature. And 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 you get into like immort they're going to emphasize immortality and sharing in God's immortality a lot. And and Protestants will push against that. And then you look at scripture, it's like, oh, scripture actually talks a lot about immortality and Christ conquering death on the cross and what that means for us with eternal life. So I think we need to learn from different traditions um, in this area. So that's, I mean, that's part of why in the book I include um, theosis, this idea of participating in God as one of the dimensions of what Christ accomplished, that we're separated from God. But not only are we reconciled, like I have a relationship with God, it's even more than that. I get to participate in the divine life, that I am one with God, like it talks about in 2 Corinthians. So yeah, that's why I think we need to embrace the fullness of what Jesus accomplished. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned many of the dimensions, but you, in the book, you talk about 20 dimensions of Christ's atoning work. And uh, what, I mean, you mentioned several, but what are, what are a couple or one that would be kind of surprising to people? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the one that comes to mind the most to me, I don't know if this would be surprising, but I think it's one of the most neglected is shame. So um, when you get into the doctrine of atonement in, in the West, in, in Western countries, so much of the conversations are dominated by guilt. I'm guilty before God. I need to be forgiven. I need to be justified. Um, these are mostly like uh, forensic or judicial categories. Mm -hmm. um, but what's interesting is while most Western theologians focus on guilt and neglect shame, when you actually look in scripture, the Bible talks a lot more about shame than it does guilt. And, and, and not only does it talk about it more uh, explicitly, like the, the amount of times it mentions shame versus guilt, the Bible was very much, and uh, the different cultures in the Bible represented, were very much honor and shame cultures. Mm -hmm. And so when we talk about what Christ accomplished on the cross, he bore our shame. He bore our shame so that we can be washed clean and we actually receive the honor of Christ. And that's amazing to think about. And for a lot of people, this it's just not on their radar. 
But what's so powerful about that Beckett is as a pastor, I'm constantly talking to people who are struggling with shame, who mm-hmm. are dealing with shame. And they're not just thinking in terms of guilt of like what I did. They're thinking in terms of shame of who I am. Mm-hmm. Not just I did a bad thing. It's I'm bad. And that's that's the language of shame. And being able to say, or uh, not only for things that I did, but shame also applies to things that were done to me. Right. So if somebody is feeling shame because of the sins of others on them, abuse, for example, then to be able to say to them, Christ has borne your shame and given you honor and glory in place of it is incredibly powerful. So I think that um, I think that that's a really underappreciated dimension of the atonement. Uh, One more that I'll share is just is adoption. Um, mm-hmm. And Ephesians, it talks about we're adopted into the family of God by the blood of Christ. And so a lot of, a lot of people think of the cross in terms of um, me and God, like my relationship with God, and he reconciles me to him, and we have this one-on-one relationship. Um, and I think that's, I think a lot of that, although I have a relationship with God, I think a lot of that understanding of my relationship with God comes from a a hyper-individualistic society. Whereas in scripture, uh, the emphasis is much more on God's covenant relationship with his people. Mm -hmm. And so when Jesus died on the cross, it's not so much that he was thinking of you, like he would, you know, and that's true at some level, but I often say God loves you as an individual, but not in an individualistic way. Like he died to redeem his people and when when he when he died on the cross for us he adopts us into his family and that's not like a secondary implication like oh i'm saved and i'm reconciled to god and then like later on there's an added bonus that i get community it's right. uh, this vertical and horizontal reconciliation happens together because of what christ has accomplished on the cross so those are just a couple dimensions that i think are uh deeply biblical and yet often neglected in the church. Yeah, that's good. And you you say in the book that um, many Westerners, and why is this? Why do Westerners neglect the victory dimension of the atonement? Yeah, I mean, I, I think as Westerners, we're going to neglect, we're going to have blind spots because we're highly individualistic. We're uh, more kind of guilt oriented than shame oriented oftentimes, although Twitter's trying to disprove that. Um, so, <laughs> Like, I, th- I think we're going to have blind spots in that. So the victory element is a, is a really good question. Why did Bible-believing Christians get to the, how did they get to the point where they're not really acknowledging Christ's victory on the cross over Satan and demons when scripture is explicit about that? I mean, Jesus himself says, 1 John 2, I came to destroy the works of the devil. Paul says in Colossians 2, that exactly that, that he, he, he's defeating the enemy through the cross. So how do we get to that place? Well, you have to think about the enlightenment, what's happening in American culture, the development of technology and science. And so what you have happening in the enlightenment in the 18th, 19th, 20th centuries is this, oh, well, now we're kind of out of the dark ages of religious superstition. And now we have science. And so we used to just kind of look for revelation from God, but now we can prove things factually. And so we've come out of the dark now and we don't believe silly things that a person could walk on water or that somebody could just uh, put their hands on someone that they would be healed. We certainly don't believe that someone could rise from the dead. Um, And so what you had a lot of Christians doing in that time is saying, okay, how do I take like the reigning ideology of my day, which is this like materialist science is the authority and then my faith and bring those together. And, um, and, and so what you have happening is, I mean, you, you just lose a lot of core doctrines. I mean, when you say Jesus resurrected spiritually, but not bodily, it's like you lose the resurrection. Like it's mm-hmm. not, that's not a compromise, right? But what happened with um, the, the victory over the powers is a lot of, a lot of Christians uh, don't genuinely believe in that we're in, a, we have a spiritual realm of Satan and demons because we're in a civilized society today that we're kind of, we know better than that now. You know, we we psychologize everything instead rather than 
you know, believing everything comes from demons. I mean, you go to, you go to Africa and you're going to, you're going to see with people with Africans that they have much, they're much more in tune with the spiritual world. So in Africa, when they're talking about the atonement, man, they're talking about Christ's victory over the powers. So one of the reasons that I think a lot of Bible believing Christians in America neglected that is because they're deeply shaped by the enlightenment and blind to a lot of the uh, spiritual reality around us. Yes. And you, you talk about um, what, first of all, what is divine simplicity and how um, does divine simplicity maintain a coherent doc, uh, doctrine of the atonement? Yeah. Okay. So divine simplicity um, is this idea that it's God is not made up of all these composite parts. So like, well, God is holy and, and God is, let's think about it like this. God is just and God is merciful. Okay. And then it's like, oh no, those things come into contradiction with one another. And so sometimes God is just and other times God is merciful. That's the way that a lot of people think about God. And and then like it's you, like uh, his attributes are kind of like a pie chart or something. Yeah, it's like a pie chart. And God, like, you know, like, oh shoot, like God needs to be just in this situation, but he's got to change his mood to come back and be merciful in this situation. The divine, the doctrine of divine simplicity says God is God. And he is the fullness of who he is in all that he does. So when, when God does something, he is perfectly holy and perfectly loving. He's perfectly just and perfectly merciful. He doesn't have to say, all right, I'm going to take off my loving hat now to bring judgment. Like when God judges, it's out of a place of perfect love and holiness and righteousness. And when he forgives, it's out of a place of perfect righteousness, holiness, and and justice and love. So divine simplicity is important when it comes to the atonement because God's not working against himself. Um, yes, we have, there, there is, there is like a, there can be a perceived tension between mercy and justice. Um, and, and I would say there is, there is even a tension that builds in the, throughout the scriptures of that, but it's not because God's like, ah, oh, should I be merciful or just? It's more on our end of not being an understand, being able to understand the, the fullness and purity of who God is. And so when you get to the cross, you see mercy and justice kissing, uh, where the cross is not only the greatest display of mercy, because it's the place where we are forgiven of our sins. It's also the greatest display of God's judgment, because sin is being punished in Christ. And so in that sense, the cross is the display of God's mercy, his judgment, his holiness, his love, his wisdom, his beauty, his goodness, all of that. Uh, yeah, so God is the fullness of who he is in all that he does. And you uh, you talk about, uh, later in the book, you talk about how the atonement creates a particular community, and you you talk about five aspects. Can you just give us a couple of aspects of how that, that happens? Yeah, I mean, so one of the one of the first things that comes to mind is, is politics. So I mentioned earlier, like, you know, a lot of Christians are spending all their time debating politics and okay, like Christians need to be involved in the, involved in the public sphere and all of that. But the, when we understand the atonement, then it's going to help us engage in those conversations in a political way or in, in a, in a, well, let me say a biblical way in terms of politics. Um, so what I mean by that is, the atonement is a deeply political uh, event. When Christ died on the cross, he has a sign over his head that says king of the Jews. It's a political term, a king. Uh, he's, he's being, he was handed over by the Romans, uh, or sorry, by the Jews to the Romans for lar largely political reasons, that he wasn't taking over Rome the way that they wanted him to politically. Uh, there's a, a Roman politician, Pontius Pilate, who's overseeing the whole thing. And so it's like any first century reader reading the book of Mark or John, or any of it would have recognized the political overtones to all of this. And so it's not like we can say, well, you know, as Christians, let's not talk about politics because that can be offensive to people. We've got to separate religion and politics. Well, we need to talk about politics. I think Jesus is political. I don't think that that means that he's partisan. That doesn't mean that you can say, well, if you're really a Christian, then you do this or you vote for this person or that person. But it does show us big political implications. So Christ is a king 
And our allegiance has to be to our crucified king over our country and any political party. Um, so I think that's a massive implication of the atonement. But it also shows us, I mean, politics, a lot of politics is about power. And the cross shows us a different way of understanding power. And not just general power, but even political power. A power that generally is more interested in the good and well-being of others than of self, a power that lays down itself for the good of others. Um, so it, it completely reshapes the way that we think of politics. I'll give you one more example about the type of community the cross creates. It creates a multicultural community. Um, so much of the story of the Bible is this, uh, this vision and intention between Jews and Gentiles. I mean, you have all the way from Genesis chapter 12, God making a promise to Abram that you're going to bless all the families of the earth. And then in Isaiah, it, he says, God says to Israel, it, it's too small a thing to redeem Israel. The vision is, is for, to be a light to the nations. And so how does that happen? How does God bring Jews and Gentiles together to be one people of different ethnicities, different races? He does that through the cross. And so that's what Ephesians 2 it's that the cross uh, tears down the dividing wall of hostility, taking those who were formerly divided and making them one. So that what we have in Christ, what our unity in Christ is greater than any differences that we have apart from him. So that when you get to the book of Revelation, you have this incredible vision of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation gathered around the throne with a slain lamb. Uh, how is all that possible to have people who have traditionally, historically, even today, who divide over race, have they're united in something greater that happens through the cross. Jesus really was a king on the cross who was uh, reconciling people to himself and to one another. Yes. Okay. So last question. Um, talk about the our union with Christ. I mean, the, I think this concept that we're united to Christ is... Uh, probably not well taught or, or people don't necessarily understand it or know about it. Talk about the, how, what the relationship is between the union with Christ and the atonement. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is so important because Christ accomplished so much for us on the cross. It is finished, right? We're adopted, we're forgiven, we're set free on and on. But unless we are in Christ, all of the benefits of the atonement are separate from us. And so the way that we receive the benefits of the atonement is by being united to Christ through faith. And so this idea of union with Christ is all over the scriptures. Um, people just don't see it necessarily because rather than saying, here's the doctrine of union with Christ and explaining it, you just have hundreds of mentions of the phrase in Christ or in him and mm -hmm. then Christ being in us. And that's the basic idea of union with Christ, is that we are in Christ, but Christ is in us. So we are united with him. We are we are one with him. We're in union with Christ. And, and that's so, why there's no condemnation in Christ, because how could you be condemned if you're in Christ? Because Christ exactly. can't be condemned. Oh, exactly. No, it's so beautiful. And that's how we have the we have the righteousness of Christ. And he doesn't just give it to us separate from himself. We have it in him. This is why I think this is, it's like deeply personal because otherwise, otherwise we might be tempted to think of salvation like this. Jesus accomplished all these amazing things and then he gives us all the gifts, right? He gives us, okay, here's your righteousness. Here's your forgiveness. Here's the power of the Holy Spirit. Here's a new family. And it's like, they're all gifts that we get from Christ. But union with Christ tells us that Christ himself is the greatest gift. And in Ephesians, it talks about how in Christ, we have every spiritual blessing. So it's not like Jesus just gives us a bunch of spiritual blessings. We get Jesus. And then in him, we've got everything. And so that's why, yeah, it, it really is. It's powerful, but it's also practical to be able to say, I am in Christ through faith by the spirit at work within me. And because of that, all these things are already true of me. That's one of the most like practical payoffs with all of this, Beckett, is, is that the atonement says that even though I struggle with sin, 
and I fail a lot. And, you know, I, 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 I fall short in so many ways that my sin has already been dealt with and I've been forgiven and God has past, present and future, by the way. Yes. Past, present, future. And God has declared over me. God has declared over Beckett that you are redeemed. You're a child of God. You are completely washed clean. And that's an identity that's given to you uh, that you get to walk in by faith. It's not something that you have to work towards. And what's, here's what's beautiful about that is like what I just said about you. It doesn't depend on how much, how, how great you do for God today. Right. And that's far too often. We, we think, well, I, I had a good day today. I read my Bible, I helped somebody out. Um, you know, I didn't swear when somebody cut me off on, on the one-on-one uh, and, and we think, well, God must be really pleased with me today. But the gospel tells us that God's pleased with us, not, not because of what we've done, but because of what he's done for us. Mm-hmm. And so my like spiritual security and identity and value, it doesn't rise and fall with how much I struggle. Um, it's steady because I'm standing on the firm foundation of Christ. Well, that is definitely good news. And um, guys, so the book is The Atonement, an introduction by Jeremy Treat. Thank you, Jeremy Treat, for coming on the show. Thank you, Beckett. So grateful for you. All right. Thank you, guys. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Beckett Cook Show. Your support makes this content possible. All episodes of The Beckett Cook Show are also available on YouTube. For more information about Beckett and his ministry, visit his website at beckettcook.com. Thank you to the team at Life Audio for their partnership with us. If you go to lifeaudio.com, you will find more faith-centered podcasts about prayer, Bible study, parenting, and more. What do you do when your world is falling apart? How do you march when it would be easier to stay where you are and die? Join me every week on the March or Die podcast, and we'll discuss that and so much more.